Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Happy Tuesday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today, I am sharing the major takeaways that I have from reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score. But first, today's rosebud and thorn. My rose today is that I am writing from a coffee shop in Philadelphia with a cappuccino and my husband reading by my side, and this is my happiest place. My thorn is that we tried a different coffee shop or like cafe this morning and it was closed. So we had to improvise and we tried this like donut place that did not, it was not it. Um, so it was weird for a second, but we figured it out. We got to a really good place. Very excited. And my bud is that this afternoon I will be having my very first Philly cheesesteak and I'm excited to see how it goes. I'm optimistic. All right, let's get into today's episode. So if you aren't familiar, The Body Keeps the Score is a book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Uh, may I have butchered his name. Um, he's a leading expert in trauma, and he shows how trauma reshapes our bodies and our brains, limiting our access to pleasure, engagement, self-control, and trust. He goes into different ways to treat trauma and the impact that he's seen them have. So today, I just wanna talk about what I learned, what I took away, how it impacted me. So takeaway number one, our brains have an alarm system like a smoke detector that goes off when we are reminded of past trauma. It's what we call being triggered. (laughs) But our brain senses that something could hurt us, so it takes us into our fight or flight response. And it's not bad to protect yourself when you're in danger. In fact, it's necessary for survival. It's just when the alarm goes off when we're not in danger that it becomes an inconvenience. Now, I liked reading about this, not because I've never heard of the concept of being triggered before, but more so because I think we use that term so often that we get, we trivialize it, we act like it's not a big deal. We use it as kind of a joke, or people make fun of people who have trauma because they use the language of triggered. And reading it kind of written out through the lens of brain science reminded me that this isn't something that we choose, it's not something silly or trivial, It's a real thing that happens because of real trauma we experience, and it impacts our real life. With that in mind as well, I learned that for this reason, trauma treatment isn't only about dealing with what has happened in the past, but even more so, it's about enhancing the quality of our everyday life. I'll get more into that in a little bit. Takeaway number two is um, kind of piggybacking off of that last sentence. I think for most of my life, I thought that healing my trauma or working with my trauma meant focusing on the things that have happened to me. But in order to even go there, most trauma survivors need to get to a place of living fully and safely in the present moment. Bessel says that in order to do that, we have to bring back the parts of our brain that deserted us when we were overwhelmed by the trauma. He focuses not on desensitizing us to what has happened, but instead to finding pleasure in everyday things like taking a walk, cooking a meal, or playing with your kids. He proposes that trauma survivors struggle to feel fully present and alive, and because of that, we may seek out sometimes the times that we have felt more alive when we did feel something, even if those times were horrific or miserable. 
Takeaway number three, this one shifted my perspective on rest a lot. He says, all creatures need a purpose. They need to reorganize themselves to make their way in the world, like preparing a shelter for the coming winter, arranging for a mate, building a nest or home, and learning skills to make a living. One of the most devastating effects of trauma is that it often damages the threat reflex response. One of the most devastating effects of trauma is that it often damages that reflex of purpose. He goes on to say that the sense of purpose involves both movement and emotions. Emotions propel us into action, positive emotions to appetitive states like food and sex and negative emotions to defend and protect ourselves and our offspring, which invites us to focus on emotions and movements, not only as problems to be managed, but also as assets that need to be organized to enhance one's sense of purpose. Now, I loved this concept because it not only opened my eyes to impacts of trauma, but also to the discomfort that can be felt in rest at times. Rest without purpose can leave me feeling uneasy and unsettled. It may cause me to develop a purpose like deep cleaning the house or writing a new book, when instead I can find the emotions and the actions that move me toward rest intentionally and embrace it just like I do when I'm working on a new project. Takeaway number four. He talks about a study done with monkeys who were raised with their mothers versus monkeys that were raised by their peers and how the ones raised by their peers grow up to be uptight, scared in new situations, and lacking in curiosity. They overreact to minor stressors. This kind of whole point of him talking about this is he's saying that early experience has at least as much impact on biology as heredity does. This brought up two things for me. First, I was reminded how, how many of us who were raised in dysfunctional homes created a family of our peers growing up and in adulthood. And it's okay that they may have been the best we could make at the time, but it isn't what we needed. It's also not a diagnosis of our life. All of the impacts we're talking about are things people have worked through before and we can work through again. Like it doesn't, it's not a diagnosis, but it is interesting information. The second thing that this brought up for me is the way that we talk about childhood trauma. In my life, it's very easy to see where the trauma and neglect came in, but for others who had parents that were inattentive or dismissive or not accepting or who were emotionally immature to the point they couldn't be a loving and attentive parent in the way that the child needed, they are still experiencing impacts of that in the ways described. Big T trauma isn't the only trauma that impacts us in this way. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Number five, trauma robs you of the feeling that you are in charge of yourself. The challenge of recovery is to reestablish ownership of your body and your mind. This means feeling free to know what you know 
and to feel what you feel without becoming overwhelmed, enraged, ashamed, or collapsed. He says that for most people, this involves finding a way to become calm and focused, maybe through mindfulness, meditation, learning to maintain that calm in response to images, thoughts, sounds, or physical sensations that remind you of the past, finding a way to be fully alive in the present and engaged with the people around you, and finally not having to keep secrets from yourself, including secrets about the ways that you have managed to survive. He reminds us that these aren't things we'll achieve one by one and check off of some healing to-do list. Instead, it's a process of overlapping and intertwining work. And some of these things will be easier than other things, which will be potentially harder and take longer. Takeaway number six, traumatized adults respond to the same comforts as terrified children. Gentle holding and rocking and the assurance that somebody bigger and stronger is taking care of things so that you can safely go to sleep. Because in order to recover mind, body, and brain, need to be convinced that it is safe to let go. And that happens only when you feel safe at a visceral level. And allow yourself to connect that sense of safety with memories of past helplessness. So in general, we recover with people, especially in communities like AA meetings, veterans organizations, or with professional therapists. You don't have to do it alone, and also it will be more effective if you don't. Takeaway number seven. This takeaway was of particular interest to me as I just started my anxiety medicine experience and even said at one point to my husband, what if what I think is anxiety is just my trauma? <laughs> the truth is that it likely is, but also that doesn't mean it's not anxiety. What the book has to say about medicine is that drugs cannot cure trauma. They only dampen the expressions of a disturbed physiology. They do not teach the lasting lessons of self-regulation. They can help to control feelings and behavior, but always at a price because they work by blocking the chemical systems that regulate engagement, motivation, pain, and pleasure. So I cannot tell you what that means for you, and I'm not even qualified to really even know what that means for me. <laughs> However, I do know that the struggles I've had with the medication are that so far it feels like it's tranquilizing me, not like it's helping me to feel better long-term. Sometimes that's helpful, but it's not better or a replacement for mindfulness, meditation, yoga, and breathing practices that have supported me for years to up to this point in being at peace with my mind and my body. He also recommends some very exciting forms of therapy, things like EMDR and internal family systems that seem like a great place to work with your trauma. I always like to remind you that if you don't have insurance, Check out Open Path for sliding scale therapists in your area if you want to try one of these out. Everyone deserves mental health support. Takeaway number eight, internal family systems is so fascinating and made me think about the Enneagram. He described it as the notion that the mind of each of us is like a family in which the members have different levels of maturity, excitability, wisdom, and pain. The parts form a network or systems in which change in any one part will affect all the others. Basically, there are roles inside of ourselves that each plays like protector, which keeps the toxic part away, but in doing so takes on some energy of the abuser. Then there are managers, which make sure we never get close to anyone or drive us to be relentlessly productive. Firefighters, which are our emergency responders acting impulsively whenever an experience triggers an exiled emotion. Now, the book is saying that a way that we can manage our trauma is to become observant of what each of these parts is doing and what they're protecting us from. But each of them are there to protect our essence, our truest self. Now, I am fascinated at the intersection of IFS and the Enneagram. 
if we all have all of the Enneagram types inside of us, and the point of our Enneagram personality is to protect our essence, our truest self, does that mean that the managers are types like one and three and the protectors are types like eight or six? Or potentially my hunch is that each of us has our dominant type, which is our protector or our shield, and then our manager is perhaps where we go in stress and maybe our firefighter is where we go in rest. Like as a type seven, I protect myself through pleasure and fun, but I manage myself with my type one stress move. And maybe I deal in crisis by shutting off my emotions like a typical five may do. Now, I don't know what I'm talking about here. This is just kind of me spitballing and being curious, but I'm really curious. I'm, I, I think there's gonna be more on this later. Takeaway number nine, the importance of witnessing. He talks about how a neuroimaging study has shown that when people hear a statement that mirrors their inner state, the right amygdala momentarily lights up, as if to underline the accuracy of the reflection. Now he's talking about a very specific kind of therapy when he brings this up, but it made me think of parenting or even asking for what we need from a partner. Reflecting back what I'm hearing, instead of trying to solve the problem or generate a solution, can be a great way to show them that they are not alone. He says that being validated by feeling heard and seen is a precondition for feeling safe. And then finally, my number 10 and my final takeaway, this is an overarching realization that a large percentage of people have experienced trauma in our society, from veterans to abuse survivors and so much more. That being said, when we engage with someone in person or online who is acting out of that base animal-like brain, being reactive or aggressive, it's a reminder that they are likely battling so many demons on their own so much so that the likelihood of their aggression really being about us or having anything to do with us at all is relatively low, especially when their reaction is so much more intense than the situation seems to warrant. I'm not saying to sit there and take it, definitely set up boundaries, walk away, but in general, be kind to one another. We truly have no idea what anyone is going through. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to create this content for you, and I will see you tomorrow for the next one. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply.